Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this week's Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. I have an interesting question I'd like to throw at you. Should people be allowed to live anywhere they want in this country? Well, the answer is obviously yes, they are. But we see the cost of that year after year when disasters strike and places get wiped out. So that brings up the question, if your house gets wiped out, should you be allowed to rebuild? Should you have to rebuild to a certain standard? There's a lot that goes into making this decision, and that's what we're going to talk about in today's podcast. I'm George Siegel, and this is the Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. Your home is probably your biggest investment, and every week we show you warning signs and solutions to help you protect it. Tell Us How to Make It Better is partnering with The Readiness Lab, the home for podcasts, webinars, and training in the field of emergency and disaster services. My guest today is Mark Moriello. He's a coastal geologist who worked at the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection for 30 years, ultimately serving as commissioner of the agency. Mark's focus at DEP was natural hazard management and land use regulation. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to meet you and see you in uh, chat today. Yeah, now I reached out to you after I saw the, uh, the Karen Clark report for Hurricane Ian and before we get into that, and I know there's a lot of interesting things to talk about from that, I'm curious, based on your background, have we now gone so far in this country letting people live where they want and knowing that they're living in dangerous areas that it, it's just it's off the charts? I mean, people just are living in areas that are vulnerable and, and we pay for it every year. We certainly do. And, uh, you know, it's it's probably the most challenging thing we face in the natural hazards management world is that we've got people occupying areas, whether it be flood hazard areas, could be storm surge areas. They're not, they're not always the same. They don't always overlap. You know, you have coastal flood areas, you have inland flood areas, you have wildfire regions, which we're seeing now. And the problem is, you know, we're just really our understanding of, of these hazards and, and risks is is blossoming there there are a lot of people saying we've got great new technology and mapping technology and the science is getting better but it keeps pointing to the same problem we're occupying areas that are dangerous and how do you change that once we've been there and it's not just recent you know we've been in some of these areas for you know uh, 200 years people been living in these these communities that are are, are really risky the problem is the risks are increasing and uh, adaptation to all these changes, very difficult. You know, uh, home rule is a big deal. Private property rights is a big deal. People get attached to where they live. They don't want to leave in, in most cases. Uh, so how do you compel that? I mean, you, we could spend hours talking about just, you know, the various mechanisms that uh, are in place to try to compel that, but very challenging. Yes. And, you know, in my documentary film, The Last House Standing, Hank Ovink talked about how in the Netherlands, the government made people move. They were in an area that just was not good for flooding. They wanted to redirect water. They wanted to change the way that was. And they had people relocate. But here, that would be such a monumental task. And I'm not a big government telling people what to do guy. Right. So short, short of that, I mean, I, I don't think you could do that. You couldn't say to new, all these people in New Jersey, which are tough people. I wouldn't say anything to them to get them to do anything. But, uh, they're not going to just relocate. Where would they go? That's right. I mean, and, and there are places. I mean, it's not like we're running out of 
uh, safer uh, territory that people could move to. The problem is, you know, who's got the political will to to take that position of you have to leave. So most likely, George, it, if it's going to happen, there are two two things that happen that cause people to move. One is the storms and the floods are so damaging that there's really nothing left uh, to rebuild on. And that does often happen. And, uh, you know, we saw a major migration uh, uh, beyond the Mississippi River in the 90s, those tremendous floods. People moved. The, the levees breached. There was no protection. They had to leave. The The more likely scenario is that the financial circumstances of continuing to live in these areas is going to change. The burdens on government and the taxpayers are increasing tremendously uh, to essentially maintain the status quo and this pattern of you know repetitive damages and rebuilding and repetitive storms and it's uh it's hard to break that cycle absolutely now what we see also is every time there's a major disaster and it kind of scrapes the land and wipes a lot of it clean like we saw in mexico beach like we saw tragically with um, hurricane ian so then the question is okay, now you're going to rebuild. Sanibel Island, for example, they're rebuilding it. I see posts every day of things right. slowly coming back. But at what standard are they rebuilding to? I would guarantee, I would bet anything that it's not a standard to survive the storm that wiped them out. So what what do you do in that instant? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope we're learning enough that we can at least mandate the highest standards for uh, construction and land use management. So it's not just how you build a building, but it's how you treat the land where you build the building. And, and that's part of it as well. But um, one of the things that, uh, you know, there are there are these engineering groups out there and FEMA does a very good job of post-storm damage surveys. They have teams that go out in these communities to get an understanding of why did the buildings fail? What can we do uh, to change that? And quite often, uh, it results in new standards that become technical uh, guidance in their technical bulletins, and hopefully communities then will adopt these these standards as well. The problem, George, is that we think very narrowly. We think in terms of historically, what did that storm just do to us, rather than thinking, what will the next 30, 40, 50 years of storms do to us? And that's where you really need to consider the future conditions that we are likely uh, to face, whether it's increased sea level rise, which we know is happening. Uh, you have this double whammy in the coastal areas where the land is subsiding at the same time as, as the, the sea level is rising. So this relative change is significant. The storm patterns, you know, whether you look at uh, Florida, look at uh, what happened with Harvey in Texas a few years ago. I think they got 48 inches of rain in the Houston area. How do you deal with that? Uh, and so What's most important, and I think when I saw your film, uh, it really, i first of all, I loved it because it, it captured a small example of, of property owners who had enough vision to say, we're going to build a house that can exceed the minimum code requirements because we know we want to be safe and we don't want this house to get washed off the, the, uh, the, the earth. And that's exactly what happened. So to the extent that we can get people to understand the risk a little bit better and take this more seriously about building and rebuilding. Uh, there are additional costs to to make these 
these houses stronger and more uh, flood resistant. But the benefits of higher construction standards so much outweigh uh, the costs, uh, but people don't always get that. You know, post-storm scenario, money is tight. It's hard to get grants to do things. People are displaced. They're renting homes. It's, it's really a difficult time. If we had uh, better plans in place where these kind of requirements could become mandatory, uh, but and get people again to understand it. Why do I need to do this? Why should I spend another hundred fifty thousand above what it would otherwise cost to just put the house back? And and they don't always look at that way. I mean, you would think that just being safer and being uh, less exposed to floods would be a significant incentive to get people to do it. But they need to understand there are other uh, there are other benefits to that. You know, when you look at uh, flood insurance, which is, you know, that's a program, there's a lot of debate about that. Uh, if you can mitigate your construction, build to higher standards, one, you're safer, you're less likely to get flooded and displaced. Your insurance rates are most likely going to uh, come down because your risk is less. So how do we communicate all these benefits to people in a way that, that changes uh, this conundrum of, damage and rebuild put it all back the way it was and it's uh we have a lot of work to do and and you know that's what a lot of my work is involved with i know in in your film it's exactly the point you're trying to make so uh, it's challenging but you know that we have to we have to pay attention to that kind of awareness well one of the things that i always wonder about and it's i think it's one of the reasons fema led us in to interview them for the film is we were talking about trying to be more proactive rather than reactive. And it seems that all the money that's spent afterwards with damage and 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 putting things back and cleaning things up, if that money could be used, just a fraction of it, to make houses safer, to give people a low interest loan where they might be able to do things to their house that will have it survive. I don't think people truly understand until they're affected by disaster what the true cost of it is. And then it's too late. Right. No, I mean, we're a very benevolent society. You know, we have these major storms. And I'll, I'll take Sandy, for example, that impacted, you know, the Northeast back in 2012. I think uh, Congress uh, passed a supplemental appropriation bill for Sandy damage of 60, $61 billion. And when we saw that, and I, that's great. You know, people needed help. But to your point, if we had allocated a fraction of that money to mitigation to get in and elevate homes uh, to do all this other work uh, upgrade the stormwater infrastructure so you get better drainage all these these things doing enhancement natural resource enhancement if we could funnel that money to mitigation we would be reducing damages along the way it's just hard to get congress to appropriate that kind of money it's uh, it's very frustrating too and i know uh, FEMA, they preach this, uh, we all understand it, and yet it's hard to make that case. But then again, when the storm hits and it's a, a terrible impact uh, socially and physically, Congress gets very benevolent and the money just flows. So it, it, we have to change that. We're spending the money anyway, so why not spend it upfront in mitigation and then avoid a whole host of damages every time we get whacked by a storm? Yeah, I bet if all their houses were wiped out, they would uh, they might react differently. Um, now, in the report about Hurricane Ian, I thought it was really interesting. Primarily a water 
event. Water seemed to have done the most damage, but it still talked about the the roofs that were damaged. It was kind of counterintuitive to how you build roofs that the ones they thought were fine weren't, and the ones that they you know it, it didn't go the way they thought it would. Does that right. show the unpredictability, or are these things you would have expected with the amount of water and the type of storm Ian was? Well, I think, you know, it's a little bit of both. What I wondered from reading that report, I mean, you can have the best set of regulations and standards in the world if you don't have uh, an aggressive code enforcement program to make sure that the buildings are actually being built that way. Uh, then, you know, all that great work in design standards and how do you uh, install connections and, you know, maintain uh, the continuous load path on the building. So the, the load of the building is being transferred to the foundation and not, you know, to some other element of the building that's going to fail. Uh, quite often, uh, code inspections will reveal problems where the connectors aren't right, uh, where they're not the right materials, you know. When, and so it's, I know a lot of the building design people they get worried because they do all the work and they take these damage surveys and they they figure out how to build a better building. And then they're reliant on the contractors to build it that way and the municipal code enforcement people to ensure that it's being built to that code. So all these things have to happen. And so I was left with some questions when I read that report. Uh, I picked up on the same thing you did. I'm like, what's going on here? Was it uh, Was there any evidence that uh, the standards were good, but they weren't being followed correctly or, or, or what. So, uh, but you're right. It was, uh, primarily, you know, a water, huge surge event. Uh, but it doesn't take much. And as, as you know, from the Mexico beach work you did and, and all the other research and certainly from Ian, it doesn't take much to lose a roof. You need one, one soffit to fail and there goes your roof. You know, you don't, uh, it doesn't all have to be catastrophic it can be a, a minor uh, penetration in a roof that that comes off and then you know the rest of it just follows so um you know it's it's as i said you know where do you where do you point the finger in those circumstances and i think all you can do is make sure that we continue to to move forward in terms of stringent standards better code enforcement there are a lot of groups that do training for code officials constantly because you get turnover, these guys, and I know a lot of them are kind of, that I know are, are all retiring. You're going to get a new wave of, of code officers coming in. Uh, they need to understand uh, the importance of, of the role they play in making sure that these homes are safe and they're safely built. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in that report. It was kind of opposite of what happened in Mexico Beach, because most of the churches and high-pointed uh, roofs in that area, in Panama City and, and Mexico Beach, were destroyed and those seemed to hold up better uh, from Ian. But the, the main thing was water. And I thought it was also interesting. And, and, and I hear this a lot each time these happen. The newer buildings tend to do a lot better than the old ones. I think we all know why, right. why that is. So even something new that's not the latest code is better than something 60 years ago that was built. But so much of the housing stock is older. It's not right. all new, although we might think it is. So yeah. how do we go spruce those places up? Because those are the ones that get bullseyed every time. Right. Well, you know, you're right. What happens is if the houses are destroyed, they're rebuilt to a higher code. That doesn't do anything for the houses that survive the storm and are, say, a slab on grade house <laughs> in an oceanfront, you know, V-zone where there's going to be wave action during a storm. So uh, there's a huge industry of home elevation 
throughout the country in, in flood hazard areas. We see a lot of that. I think I've seen stats for New Jersey, probably 11,000 plus homes have been elevated since Sandy in New Jersey. And that's a combination of new and older homes, but homes can be retrofitted. You know, a lot of the problems are that uh, open pile foundations were not required a long time ago on beachfront communities. And so people built slab on grade houses, block foundations. And so it's no mystery that when you get a storm surge or overwash during a storm event, that water is going to scour around the foundation, the foundation will fail and there goes the house. So now you can elevate the house, install a pile foundation in other areas that aren't subject to that kind of uh, wave action or scour in a, say a typical A zone, uh, having the foundation uh, flood proof through installation of flood vents, something as simple as that, that can relieve the pressure of the, of the, the hydrostatic pressure from the water as it builds up on the outside of the foundation. Uh, there are ways to retrofit through mitigation. It takes money. It gets back to what we talked about earlier, though. I mean, why wait for those houses to get, you know, totally destroyed if we can put a little bit of money in there and uh, mitigate uh, that potential damage? And we, we save money in the long term. But uh, again, how do you redirect funding from so heavy post-disaster to pre-disaster uh, mitigation? Yeah, I you know, and I'm not a a big fan of politicians and, and and them being in control. So I tell people, you have to be your own best advocate. But if somebody goes to a homeowner that has a house that's been in their family for 60 years and says, hey, for $100,000, we can jack your house up and, and potentially save it. I don't know that you're going to convince a lot of people unless there's some kind of incentive other than you'd think saving your house would be enough of an incentive. Right. But a lot of people don't can't think that way. Maybe financially, they can't even consider it. That's so right. I think that's a tough sell. And it, it, even if it, it relies nothing on politicians, just people being smarter, I still don't know if they would do it. That Yeah. And you're, you, you nailed it right there, uh, George, that even if you do have uh, federal flood insurance, uh, you are eligible for some increased funding to mitigate your home, say elevate your home. But uh, under the typical ICC coverage through FEMA, you're going to get, I think, $30,000 for that. And then you go and you talk to the contractor. He says it'll be 120000 to to elevate your home. Where do you find that difference? And that's something we've been arguing in terms of how do you uh, cobble together programs from other agencies? You know, uh, NOAA just announced yesterday they're going to have, I think, $2.5 in funding for resilience. Uh, Small Business Association has programs uh, for disaster resilience. How can you try to fill these gaps in what may be, you know, one program, say FEMA, ICC, by finding funding in these other programs. Uh, because the reality, if you can't help these people mitigate, we're going to just see it happen again and again. And then it becomes everybody's problem because we all pay that cost. And if they're not being mitigated, we're going to pay it on the disaster recovery side of it. You know, the, the money is going to come some way. So if we were smarter about how and when we spend that money, we could really uh, be a lot more efficient in terms of adaptation strategies throughout these these vulnerable areas. Yeah, it's hard to find the to pinpoint the true villain in this story because I think if if you took a car, for example, and you said to somebody, "Hey, you can save fifteen grand by not getting the airbags and the safety features that make this car safe," I bet a lot of people would do the discount. 
and not put those things in. So now right. put that over to their house and say, you got to spend a hundred grand to shore up your yeah. house. I think most people are going to go, nah, I'm going to roll the dice that it's not going to happen to me. Yeah. So then it comes back down to rebuilding. And maybe we have to be tougher on that end and say, if your house is destroyed and you can't rebuild it to a certain standard, you can't rebuild it because we're not going right. to, everybody pays for it. My insurance went up. I didn't have any damage in the last hurricane, but I'm paying a lot more for homeowner's insurance now. So somebody else can live by the beach. I don't know that that's fair. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. There has to be more financial incentive and, and you know, to say use the stick more than the carrot, I think it's got to be a little both, but there's got to be a consequence of not taking action that's going to improve your condition. But I have to say, there's a lot of people who are unsympathetic to all these victims. I mean, it sounds cold and, and callous, but the fact is, I hear a lot of people say, well, they shouldn't be there in the first place. Why, why would you live right next to an eroding beach? It's a good point. Well, it's a beautiful location and it's, you know, it's a lovely place to be. But uh, I think a lot of people are, are more and more moving to a position of saying, look, if you want to assume that risk, then you have to assume the financial responsibility associated with that. That's good to a point. But even if people can assume that risk, and there's a lot of affluent people who don't need to have federal flood insurance that's going to cover, you know, $250,000 of a, an $8 million home. Uh, what happens when when those damages impact other people? So it's not as if everybody's operating in, in a vacuum where it really doesn't affect your neighbors or your community. It affects everybody. If buildings are being damaged and, and you saw it in Mexico Beach, those buildings become the projectiles and the missiles that then take out the next row of buildings behind them. So uh, it's, it's not as easy to just say that, but I, I think financially there has to be there have to be changes, and it's likely to start happening now. I mean, I read where, uh, I don't know if it was Allstate or one of the big insurance companies just decided they're not going to write policies in certain areas of California. That's huge. I mean, if you can't get insurance, you know, there are decisions that you can make, and then there are decisions that will be made for you. And that might be something we start seeing. You know, if towns can't don't have the bonding capacity to raise money for capital projects because of their risk, their vulnerability, they'll start thinking differently. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the big issues we have up here and in Florida and elsewhere is the, the federal beach nourishment program, which, you know, again, we could do uh, several shows just talking about that, but people see government out spending money, on things, whether it's levees, whether it's beach nourishment, whatever these big project flood walls. And they assume that if the government's spending all this billions of dollars on this, they must be safer. Well, that's not true. And that's part of the problem we have is that people get lulled into this sense of things are going to be fine because I look out my window, there's a dredge pumping sand on my beach. Well, that sand's going to be gone in three years. And you're going to have to hope the dredge comes back. And how much does that cost? And and again, we spend money on things that are not smart. If we were smarter about that, uh, a lot of that could be uh, redirected. And and ultimately, you know, you don't people don't want to hear managed retreat, but that that's going to happen. Retreat is going to happen, whether it's managed or whether it's not managed, whether it's catastrophic storm damage. But at some point, we have to embrace the idea of we, we're too close uh, to these, these hazardous areas. We have to pull back. It's obviously easier in riverine communities than it is on the coast, 
because the land values are much different. You have the coastal uh, tourism economy that everyone says we have to preserve. And, and I get that, you know, we're heavy depend heavily dependent on coastal tourism in New Jersey, but I don't know that it automatically means that you have to maintain every house on the edge of an eroding dune that's going to fall into the sea. Yeah. Spoiler alert for those people that think that sand is going to last three years. Just take one <laughs> hurricane and it'll all be gone. Right. Um, yeah. And that's frightening about places that are losing their insurance. My, I had a recent podcast uh, guest, Bobby Milstein, who's a fire mitigation expert that was in the last house standing. And he, some of his clients are told their insurance is several hundred thousand dollars a year if they want to stay with a company. Right. Now that may be, if you have an $8 million house, people go, oh, you can afford that. Nobody should be paying that much, but they right. are taking a huge risk being out there in the woods, being in an area that right. is prone to fires. So you're right. I think that's where things will change the, the most quickly. Unfortunately, dictated by the insurance industry, which right. um, is a whole lot. We could do several shows just on that. You know, the, it's it's enough to make your head explode. It's like, what's the solution? Right. We're, we're, we're spinning our wheels here, just throwing different ideas out. Right. And, you know, it, uh, you know, it sounds crass, but it's all about money. I mean, when you think of it, if, if there's money to, to subsidize home ownership in risky areas, which there is, that's the, the flood insurance program. Uh, if there's money, disaster assistance that always flows that, that perpetuates some problems. But on the other hand, if uh, the money issue is you're ineligible for, you know, insurance for whatever reason, that changes it. If your town doesn't have the uh, financial wherewithal to, to do capital projects to protect the communities, that's a big deal. Uh, so it's, you know, one way or another, uh, it comes down to dollars and, and, and how they're spent, where they're spent. Um, a lot of people focus on the, the basic element of understanding and getting people at least understand it. It's like, where do you start? Because you can have conversations with people who don't, understand the risk of where they live uh, and it's it, sometimes it's how you talk about it and we used to pull our hair out when we would hear people using the term hundred year storm and you'd say that to a resident and they say oh well thank god we just had one you know two years ago and yeah. you know now we're good it's like well no you're not good you're never good you know uh it's the same risk you have every year of of getting that storm and and so how you talk about it how you can uh, convey information. And, and again, we've got a lot of good information about shoreline changes and uh, tide gauges that are measuring changes in sea level in these coastal areas. So how do you take all that and not in an effort to scare people, because that's obviously not the goal, but to at least make sure people are informed enough that when they think about these decisions of where to build or rebuild or how to do it, you know, they have they have a better uh, understanding of of what's involved and what they should be doing. There's a clip in my film uh, from The World According to Garp, where he's looking at a house with his wife and an airplane crashes into the house and he looks at her and he goes, honey, we'll take the house. Do you realize the odds of a plane ever hitting this house again? <laughs> and on the surface, you go, yeah, that's kind of like the hundred year storm. But then you take a house that's right by an airport where a lot of small planes land. All of a sudden, there's a much greater likelihood that another plane is going to hit that house. That's right. And and that's the story, I think, for anybody that lives in in danger prone areas. I don't know if you know this area in uh, Southern California between Marina del Rey and the airport. That's where the L.A. River flows out to the uh, Pacific. 
And I was told for years they can never build there because it was a floodplain and it's not safe to build there. And I went back there several years ago and the whole thing is developed with condos and office buildings and everything, which they built in a floodplain. Tell me how that happens. Yeah. And you know what? There's no excuse for that. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, gee, this community was established in 1850. Who knew what was going on at the time? But we know better now. And and we see it even in post-Sandy in New Jersey. There were communities that upzoned an area in Ocean County that the, the landfall of the hurricane wiped out an entire community. And instead of purchasing uh, those properties and, and requiring significant setbacks and, and dune enhancement, the municipality uh, zoned the property from single family to two family to help these people financially so they could rebuild the house and then have a rental opportunity to help, you know, generate some revenue to offset, you know, the losses that they experienced. So that's the most frustrating of all. Your example of that floodplain in California and this uh, upzoning after storm is contrary to any common sense approach that that you should have. And, uh, you know, I, I it, you, as I said, there's no excuse for it. You can't claim that you don't know it or we didn't know better. Uh, that's absolutely frustrating. I mean, at a time when we're trying to encourage people to pull back, how do you do that? That tough, you know, retreat discussion that we have. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of people say it, it, it right now it's a voluntary, all these acquisition programs are voluntary. You have to have people who want to sell their property and move. But at some point, does it change? Do, do land use uh, building moratoria become a post-storm tool? Again, you're going to have to have a lot of uh, a lot of courage if you're a municipal official to try to to develop that. But what's the alternative in, in some areas? And and the other thing, George, is when the, the debates rage about what to do, everybody likes to push the debate to the extremes. Like we have to save everything. Or you got to abandon everything. And, and I used to do a lot of talking when I was at DEP. I'd talk to people and they'd say, well, we can't abandon the barrier islands. I said, well, that's not what we're talking about. What I'm, we're talking about is certain areas and certain communities on the barrier lines are especially vulnerable. Quite often they correspond to a location of a tidal inlet that existed, you know, 100 years ago. So it's, it's a weak link in these barrier island in the, in the uh, geomorphology there. Uh, we know these areas, so let's not fall into that that debate BS where you know you you immediately get pushed to which side are you on? Hold the line forever or abandon everything? It's like no, we should all be in the middle. We we hold the line where it makes sense, where it's cost effective, and other areas where it's just too dangerous, too risky. We have to to move out of those areas, and at least then you begin to change the patterns over time. You make incremental progress in in uh, you know, uh, hazard mitigation. There was one area, there was one story that I wish we had been able to put in the film, uh, but the woman was too upset and it's understandable. She lived in a duplex and half the duplex was destroyed. The person who lost that half left, they sold it for pennies on the dollar and she stuck with her half and her insurance company said, you have to rebuild all or nothing. I mean, there's stories. Yeah. So I mean, that was tragic, but this woman was way too upset to to, to come on yeah. camera. So I don't think there's certain risks that people do know. And then there's other ones that are obvious. I think with all that's been going on the last 10 years, if you live anywhere near water, you have to know if it's a right. hurricane season, you could get wiped out. If you live in the woods, 
you should know you're going to burn, could burn down. You live in the plains, you know, a tornado could hit you. It's like, I don't think people should be oblivious to this, but we have to get tougher and start demanding more and stop rewarding mediocrity that, that builders give us or a homeowner just right. selling their crap to us. I mean, you got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, if we're going to take a position that people can continue to rebuild in locations, I think as a matter of fairness to the community and to the taxpayers, they should have to do that in a way that is really top-notch, uh, exceeding minimum regulatory requirements, whether it's, you know, how you landscape in a fire hazard zone to how you build, you know, in a coastal environment in a way that uh, is less disruptive to the natural functioning of the beach or the dunes. And um, I think at least we should have a, a strong hand when it comes to uh, regulations, codes, enforcement, if we're going to continue to to pay the cost to allow people to maintain or retain these areas. Now, I know that, you know, we, we've clamped down on certain things where, like cigarette smoking. I can't smoke in public and blow my smoke into your face. But what if I live in a crappy house and my house obliterates in a storm and wipes out your house? Is there any accountability? If I can't keep it on my lot, am I responsible for where it ends up and hurts other people? That's a great point. I mean, at what point does that house become a nuisance? And your nuisance is is threatening another property. Uh I imagine there are a you know, hundred lawyers who'd love to try that one uh, because again, you can go out and some of it in, in a, a post-storm scenario, you look at it, you go, wow, I, I'm really, we can't believe what happened here. In other cases, you go out and say, oh, we all knew this was going to happen. You can just tell from the type of housing uh, and, and, you know, the history of, of what storms do in particular areas. But uh, there's a, a principle that was advanced by the Association of State Floodplain Managers, which is a national floodplain group made up uh, largely of state representatives and, and various professionals in the field. Uh, New Jersey has a state chapter, and you'll be joining us in October uh, to speak to our group. Uh, but the, the theory that we developed through ASFPM maybe 20 years ago was no adverse impact development. And so it was the counter argument to the argument people say, I have rights, my property rights. I have a right to build my house. And and our our counter to that was you do have rights to build your house, but we have a right as a neighbor to not be adversely impacted by what you do with your property rights on your or property. So how do you take that concept of do no harm? And it all gets back to how you build, where you build, how big does it have to be? How do you treat the land around, you know, your do you clear all the vegetation and grade it, or do you try to incorporate uh, different uh, vegetation to uh, to help? So, uh, you know, we we know how this should be done. Uh, I think what we try to do, we try to find the communities that really are doing things better and a little bit bolder, and and try to highlight those. Uh, and it's often hard to find, but they are out there. So. If you can promote the successes and show, look, here's how these communities did it. And we see it a little little at a time. I think people generally are, are impatient. You know, we want this to change immediately, but we didn't get ourselves into this problem overnight. This was an incremental problem that happened as our communities were developed without the lack of knowledge about flood risk. But similarly, we should incrementally and, and accept the fact that it's a long, arduous process to 
to kind of walk that back and do things differently and change habits and, and all that. Uh, it's, it's frustrating that it doesn't happen quickly enough because storm seasons here, you know, Noah just named their hurricanes for the year and everybody's going, Oh, here we go. They're predicting this many storms, this many majors. And it's like, okay, you know, roll the dice. Where's it going to land this year? Yeah, that's always the uh, the million dollar question, and I think we have to do a better job focusing on the things that survive, even though it it's a better it's a it's a more interesting story. People want to see the things that were all wiped out. It's like watching a car crash. You know, maybe you focus on the cars that made it. You know, who won that's the right. race. So that's what I loved about the last house standing is we saw a house that survived. That should be the goal to be that. That's right. Right. And so, you know, that's what I liked about the report that you and I have been talking about is it talked about the things that survived. So, you know, we have to point that stuff out. People need to know this is what it takes. This is what you should be doing. That's right. And I think it, the more we do that, the more people uh, will have a reaction of, I want that. I, I want that to be my house. I want to do that. And that's, that's what I felt when I uh, saw your film last year. I thought, you know, what a great example. Uh, you don't have to make stuff up. You went out and you literally documented a, a real a real life scenario of uh, a property owner who, who built differently. And, and we had one of these guys uh, in New Jersey, in the borough of Mantelokink. When you saw the Sandy uh, impact photos of Jersey, you very likely saw where the ocean cut a couple of new inlets through a very thin barrier island. So there's this one area of Mantelokink. It used to be a tidal inlet. The ocean cut through. And every house was gone except for one house. So there was one house. And it was a little bit, now that I'm thinking of, a little last house standing-ish. And so uh, I met the owner. I was out with FEMA doing the mitigation assessment uh, work. And I met this homeowner. And everybody was marveled. They're looking. And we realized this guy had built his house. It was in an A zone. It was back from the ocean. But he built it to V zone standards, which means he had a pile foundation that was elevated. And Sandy went right through his garage. It blew his doors off, but his, his house is standing. And I asked the guy, I said, wow, what, what compelled you to, to build to that standard? You weren't required to do it. It wasn't a code requirement. Your insurance didn't require it. He said, I live a block and a half from the beach. I've seen what the ocean can do. And, and I did it differently. And as a result, you look at this storm-damaged neighborhood. There's only one house standing in the whole neighborhood. It was this house. So... You know, and and then, as you said earlier, take that example, show it to people, hear them, you know, uh, let them hear from the owner as to what motivated them to do it. I would have loved to talk to the property owners you dealt with in Mexico Beach. I mean, uh, just uh, amazing attitude of, look, we're going to do it right. And obviously they had the financial means to do that. And I don't know what, you know, the, the additional cost was to build that house. That was one you know, sturdy house they built, but, and not everyone can do that. I imagine it was, it was quite expensive, but you know, when you look at the long term, people home ownership in these areas is usually over uh, many, many years. And, and so again, the additional costs over time clearly are uh, outweighed by the, the long-term benefits of, of less risk, more safety for you and your family, lower insurance rates and peace of mind. I mean, uh, how do you put a price on that? Um, your family's safety and peace of mind. I don't think you can, but I've actually had people argue with me about the film that if everything around me was wiped out, I don't know that I would want to survive. And that just makes me laugh. It's like, really? Oh 
You want to be like everybody else and wiped out? I I know it yeah. it'd be miserable being in that house and having nobody around and and survivor's guilt. There's a lot of things that weigh on that. And I don't right. want to minimize that, but that you're still a hell of a lot better off than if you're wiped right. out. Yeah. I mean, flood victims and storm victims, uh, I've met many of them over my career. There's nothing worse than that. I mean, well, obviously there are things worse than that. That's that's a really bad place to be because it affects every part of your life. Uh, and it's just uh, the misery. You see it and you think we have to help these people get out of this this cycle. It's uh, we have to help break it. It's uh, it's total misery. So if you had to come up with a takeaway point, if you wanted people to come away going, all right, here's my action item. Here's something I can do. What would you, what would you tell them they can do to make it better? I think uh, there, there are a lot of things out there. I think the more that we communicate the success stories, and you mentioned that earlier, don't just show the devastation, but show people what works, how it works. And we have to be honest about the long-term costs of, of, what we are doing. And that's where I fault government agencies for not really being fully honest when they do benefit cost ratios to decide if a project meets the cost benefit uh, ratio they have to meet in order to get it funded. And you look at what goes into those analyses and they're very, they're often uh, seem very skewed toward building a project rather than taking the money and doing something, uh, that's not as big and splashy, but may ultimately be much more effective in the long term. And an example of that would be, you know, the big flood wall project versus mitigating, you know, 10,000 homes that, you know, you're going to get that, that, uh, that clear benefit. And uh, we can't let people think that we're doing all these things and making them a lot safer when we are not. And it's not to scare people. Uh, it's to to make sure people keep this, in, you know, first and foremost when they're living in these areas that they have to continually look to support community-wide mitigation, adaptations. Conditions are changing, and that's that's the problem. Human nature uh, has a hard time dealing with change on that scale. It's uh, you know we think we're all set, and and we used to look at, uh, for example, the flood insurance rate maps that FEMA would put out based on past flooding. And then at the same breath, you hear FEMA and NOAA are talking about sea level rise, increasing precipitation. So why would you ever uh, construct, design and construct a building based on a, a flood map that reflects the historical condition as opposed to the future condition that we know we're going to experience? They have to be forward looking. Um, and, you know, just uh, I, I think that kind of education, that kind of awareness uh, you'd have to just keep beating the drum. Uh, yeah, I think somebody needs to come up with a cost calculator that shows what a victim really does go through. If you could put a dollar price on that, maybe losing a job, having to find a place to live for three or four years, the time spent rebuilding your house, all the possessions that you lost. If you add all that stuff up, right. mitigation looks a lot better at that point. Absolutely. And that's why I say when you look at the full suite of benefits of mitigation versus the cost, um, and how do you convince congressional representatives who are in the middle of the country who take an attitude of, you know, the people on the coast chose to live there? Why should I subsidize those? And, you know, we hear this argument all the time. You know, you have tornadoes in the middle of the country, you got wildfires out west, storm floods, and 
coastal erosion on the coastal areas, but ultimately all the taxpayers pay. That's the part that sort of blows my mind when when you see a post-storm supplemental appropriation of $61 billion, everybody's paying for that. So whether you like the people on the coasts or not, doesn't matter. You know, it's your money. Wouldn't you rather have your money being spent in ways that are actually reducing damages over time rather than just throwing big, you know, uh, bags of, of monetary aid to people once they've been impacted or in the midst of that that miserable you know, situation. Yeah, nobody really wants to pay for anybody else's disaster, but you have to, that's where you have to have empathy and understanding and, and know that uh, we're, we all have to help each other, but you're Thanks. right. The money could be used so much differently to avoid right. so much of that. We are the United States after all. So, you know, let's, let's stay united on things that are this important because really it's, you know, public safety is, is paramount. And uh, so, a lot, a lot of work to do. I know. Well, let's hope for a mild hurricane season. And uh, Amen. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Yeah, it was great talking with you, George. And I look forward to seeing you in a few months. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for joining me on today's Tell Us How to Make a Better podcast. If you want to reach Mark, his contact information is in the show notes. There's also a form in the show notes where you can reach out and get in touch with me. If you have a building or remodeling disaster or a great story of success, fill out the form and let me know about it. I'd love to feature you on an upcoming episode of the podcast. And I've also put in a link to my documentary film, The Last House Standing, and there's a code there that you can use to watch the movie for free. I'd love for you to check out the film and let me know what you think about it. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.